Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. Have you ever read the Old Testament of the Bible, Woe to Go? It holds stories of war and violence, of nations thriving and being destroyed. It has language that is narrative, poetic, instructional. There's a verse in Jeremiah 48 that may give you some grief. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for Do Not Be Slack in Doing the Work of the Lord. I'm sure that there are some parts of the Old Testament that if you read them, you are just going to gloss over them. You're going to read them and go, look, I don't get all these names. It's like reading the white pages. It's just name after name after name. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I can understand that passages like this in the book of Jeremiah also have a similar sort of appeal to it, just to go, look, it's about Moab. I've never been to Moab. I don't really know any Moabites. I I don't really care that much about Moab, and we just skip through it. Moab started from the the less than ideal circumstances. You You might remember that Lot and his wife fled Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was after Lot's two daughters seduced their father with alcohol, and they had an incestuous relationship with their father, that that Moab was the result. And so there's something very tragic about Moab's start in life, but there's something about that that I think God wants us to understand, is that, that children are never the mistake. And there's something about Moab that captured the heart and the attention of God. And I know that all across Launceston this morning, there is not going to be one other pastor preaching about Moab this morning. I'm just just going to go out there on a limb. But I want to see if we can see something about Moab and God's heart for Moab. Because what's interesting is that throughout the entire history of Moab, it's a country that is adjacent to Israel, and as Israel came out of Egypt, God had told the Hebrews, you are to not trespass in the land of Moab. Now, that's really interesting, because every other country that were put before the Hebrews, God says, just wipe them out, but not the, not the Moabites. To the Moabites, he said, ask their permission to come into their land, and so they do. And the result is that the Moabites say, no, you can't come through our land. And God says to the Israelites, that's it then. Go around, don't go through. Now that's really interesting. Why was God showing this special attention almost and giving special treatment to the Moabites? Because most of the other surrounding nations as you read through the Old Testament, you realise God's not really that wrapped with them. But Moab tended to get almost special treatment, which is really interesting. And through the years, down through the centuries, it was a country that God ensured was never taken captive. In fact, it became a bragging point for them. This bragging point became not just a bragging point, but it became a source of intense pride for Moab. And and in the mix of this, they began worshipping other gods, particularly the god that they call Chemosh. 
and they attributed their security to this God, Chemosh, without attributing rightly to God. Added to this, when the Babylonians came up against Judah and began to conquer them, Moab joined in. And they took territory from Judah and they murdered many of the Jews. That's called a capital crime. And that's a word you're going to hear me use a lot this morning because we're going to be dealing with one of the most uncomfortable topics raised in Scripture. And it's really uncomfortable. And I'm really uncomfortable preaching it, but we're going to do our best. I, I preface it on, on the grounds that for the last couple of years, I've been meeting with someone who's not a Christian. His big objection to the God of the Bible is that Christianity is just like any other religion. It commands that non-believers be put to death. That war be carried out on non-believers. That's why he could never become a Christian. Maybe you've had people put similar objections to you. I'm going to tell you how I dealt with that in a moment. This is taken from just two verses, verse 11 and verse 12. Or oh, sorry, verses 10 and 11, sorry. 10 and 11 in Jeremiah. And I'm taking the first half of the verse, and I wish there's a whole lot of me that just wishes this was all the verse said. <laughs> because, man, this would be an easy word to preach. Do not be slack in doing the work of the Lord. Boy, I could preach up a storm around this, but unfortunately, it's only half the verse. And it's the other half of the verse that's going to present us with some problems, especially if this is the only verse that many people get to read in the Bible. So before we can look into these two verses, I want, I want to do something with you. And I want to give you some helpful tips. In fact, I want to give you five helpful tips in reading the Old Testament. Because I think many people approach the Old Testament not really understanding how to read it. So if you've got a pen, you might want to jot these down because I think these will save you a mountain of heartache as you read through the Old Testament. So we're going to count down five to one. Here's number five. The fifth helpful tip for reading the Old Testament is become familiar with the story of the Old Testament. Become familiar with it. The most amazing thing to me about the Bible is one of the things that makes it unique. It's easy to assume that all other holy books are just kind of similar to this, when in fact they're not. And one of the outstanding things that makes the Bible completely different, that is unique to any other religious book, is it's actually a story. It has a beginning. It has a middle. And it has an end. And it's the one story. It has all the elements of a great story. Beautiful beginning. Something goes horribly wrong. A hero steps onto the stage and saves the day. That's the story. It's a great story. It's a story of love. It's a story of betrayal. It's a story of incredible sacrifice. But it's a story. When you read something... It has a context. If you don't know someone, 
and they come up to you and insult you to your face, what's your response? Hmm, offence. If you know someone very well and they come up to you and insult you to your face, what's your response? Laugh and hug them, especially if you're an Aussie. Apparently the way you show someone if you like them is the level to which you insult them. This is not an invitation, by the way. This is just what I've noticed. But the difference is context. One you don't know, this one's your friend. They could use the same words, but when your friend says it, it changes everything. So context. And in this passage, we do have a context that's going to change what might appear to be something fairly gruesome, actually. And I hope we can see this. Here's the other thing, and I just want to reiterate this. Narration should not be confused with instruction. So in the Old Testament, we have Israel going on killing sprees that were not sanctioned by God. Did that make them right? No, not at all. In fact, God a couple of times says you should not have done that. For example, uh, Judah and his brothers went and avenged their sister, Dinah. And God was really angry with them for doing it. So just because it's described in the Old Testament doesn't mean God endorsed it. Right? There, there's some things that, that I think are helpful to understand the Old Testament as we look at it. So let, now let's look at this verse. And, and this verse on the surface of it is going to be really, really challenging for Christians, especially if you're non-Christian friends who are already suspicious about Christianity see a verse like this. This is what it says. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness. And cursed is he who keeps back his sword from bloodshed. There you go. All you Christians and your book are just like every other religion. You're all about killing and blowing people up who don't believe like you do. Huh. How do we respond to something like that? And this is what I want us to see immediately using some of the things I've just mentioned. The context of this verse is not about unbelievers. There's nothing in this verse that talks about kill unbelievers. The context of this verse deals with the nation of Moab. The other part of this context is it's not telling Israel to do anything. In fact, this is not speaking to Israel. This is speaking to Moab. And it's not what Israel or Judah is going to do to them. It's what the Babylonians are going to do to them. This is not an instruction as much as this is the prophet prophesying this is what will happen. So we've got a certain context. We read on in the next verse. Moab has been at ease from his youth. Yeah, and we've, we've seen that for some reason, God in his grace and mercy had chosen to protect Moab. He blessed them with his protection. It goes on and it says, and has settled on its dregs. Now that sounds pretty interesting, but this is apparently what the ancients would do to ensure that their wine didn't become too potent. They would take it from a container and before it overly fermented, they would pour it into another one to stop it from becoming sticky and like highly fermented and highly potent. They would, they would take it and pour it into another one. Sometimes they would 
it'll be an animal skin they're pouring into and sometimes they tie it with a leather string and hang it off a branch and put it in a cool river to actually slow down the ferment fermentation process. Dregs are what happens in a bottle, wine skin, when you don't do that. When you don't do that, eventually the, the water will evaporate out of it and you end up with this highly potent, highly fermented, very strong stuff at the bottom. And God's saying, that's what Moab is. They are so intoxicated on their arrogance. They have become like the dregs in a bottle. And it goes on. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Now, this is an allusion to the fact that Moab had never been conquered and they'd never been taken captive, which is amazing considering if you know anything about the Middle East, even today, this is a highly volatile part of the world. There are trade routes everywhere through this region and the fact that Moab had never been conquered and taken captive is, is amazing and it really does point to God's grace on this people. But it had become a source of pride. Nor has he gone into exile, saying the same thing. So his taste remains in him and his scent has not changed. And what is that scent? It's one of incredible arrogance. And what did that arrogance lead him to do? Well, let's hold that question for a moment. Let's come back to the question that, that my friend asked me or challenged me with. That the Bible is just like any other religious book. It encourages war and it encourages violence. And surely you would have to conclude that if those couple of verses were the only verses you read in the Bible. You'd probably think, my mate's right. But how are we to respond? Well, this is how I responded to my friend. I said to him, uh, according by his name, I said, I've got the most expensive Bible software in the world. I can put in any combination of words and I can have it spit out on in, if those words occur in any English translation, any English translation. So let's put in some of these words that you're accusing the Bible of saying. Kill unbelievers. Let's just start with those two words. We put those words in. I hit enter. I sit back. I'm sitting sort of right beside him. I say, there's the results. The results were zero. He was shocked. He said, well, no, it has to be there. I, I, okay, give me the words. We, we tried everything he suggested. Zero results. The Bible simply doesn't say it. And this is how I responded. There is not one verse in the Old or the New Testament that instructs war or violence against unbelievers. Not one. Now, I said to him, the Bible does talk about people being put to death, but those commands have to do with justice, not religion. And those verses have to do with, here's the expression, and I told you I was going to use this expression, those who committed capital crimes, that is, murder. Those who committed murder. So those who committed murder, that's a capital crime. 
were to be dealt with. If you recall, when Noah came off the ark in Genesis chapter 9, God said this. He gave them one, basically one big law for how they were to get along with each other. And that was this. Do not murder each other. If anyone murders, they themselves should be put to death. Now, the fact that God had given that command, does that mean people would be put to death? No. If no one murdered, no one would be put to death for murder. Now, this is not so much a religious command as it is a creation command. So there were times when people who committed murder were sanctioned by God to be put to death. That's true. But not because they were unbelievers, but because they committed capital crimes. Now, let's have a look at some of the New Testament teaching on this. This is taken from Romans chapter 13, reading from verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. So I would say this, if we had a policeman in our church who was struggling with a matter of conscience over this, this is, I would say, you are, you are this verse right here. You're charged by God to defend justice. And, and I, I was pastoring in a, a RAF, that's an R-A-A-F, town for many, well, many, several years. And there were people who were a part of the military. And I'm a, I've already told you, I'm a pacifist. I, I, I wouldn't bear arms. And these guys would. And, and for the most part, we had some really interesting discussions about this. But I tell you what, if we, if, if we're in, if we ever are in war, and God forbid, I hope we never are, but I want people who understand some of these principles defending our country. I just wouldn't be one of them. But it goes on, it says this, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Verse 5, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Hmm. So I, I find this interesting, that God would use nations to hold other nations to account. So when we read of the what appears to us to be some fairly gruesome stories of Israel coming in and conquering the Canaanites and things like this, if we put it in the context that these Canaanites were slaughtering women, innocent women and children, does that change this picture at all? Because that is indeed what they were doing. So God, I, I just thought of these countries, these nations. God used Israel. He then used Babylon. You might think, well, how did he use Babylon against the Israelites? And you might think, but the Israelites are God's people. We've already seen in Jeremiah that the Israelites were committing massive capital crime. Murder was rampant in Israel at this time. And God sent the Babylonians in. Here's some things worth considering. And this is what does make the Bible completely different to any other holy book. 
There's no capital punishment ever conducted that wasn't done without prior warning. In other words, if you do this, this is the penalty. So there's the warning. And then there was the announcement. And we've seen some 42 chapters or so of Jeremiah pleading with Israel to repent, pleading with them to stop their crime, stop their, their gross sin. And they didn't. This is God's patience and pleading. And if he didn't intervene, how many people would have needlessly died? We don't know. So let's come back to this verse, Moab. What's God's purpose in dealing with Moab? See, I've already told you they captured part of God's special heart. They had his eye. They had his attention. They had his favour. Even though they did so many things that broke his heart, he instructed Israel, don't go to war with them. Don't, don't wipe them out. Leave them. Don't invade their territory. I've got them. They're okay. We'll deal with this. So God treated Moab like that. So why is God now saying the sword is going to come after you, which is a picture of what the Babylonians were going to do to them? If we were to continue reading on in the chapter, we would see God actually holds out this same promise of hope. He holds out this, this, this reminder, I love you, Moab. I'm going to keep you. You're not going to be destroyed. In fact, I'm going to make sure, he says, I think in the, yeah, the last verse, I will restore you. So there's something about Moab that God deeply loves. So I don't want us to get the picture of God, and I don't think we can get the picture of God from this chapter, this section, that he's an angry God who just wants to smite and smit people. Because <laughs> he's not like that. He loves so why is God wanting to not destroy them but to discipline them? And to that, I think we go to the New Testament, as I mentioned before. And this is actually quoting the Old Testament, but it's in Hebrews, and it says this, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the Lord's discipline, and this is a great parenting tip, it's not to punish, it's not to destroy, it's to correct and restore. It goes on in verse 11 of Hebrews 12 and it says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the fruitful piece of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you could get this, you can see that God is saying you have crossed a line, you've gone too far and I've got to make sure you don't go any further. The Babylonians who are coming in and conquering my people of Judah and Israel because you're now doing the same things you're going to suffer as a result of it as well. And then he says but you're going to be restored. Ultimately restored. There's something about the heart of God that this shows us and this is what I want us to see. The old covenant introduces us to the heart of God, while the new covenant fully reveals it. And this is my hope, and I wrote this in this week's e-news article, because I was really, really stirred by this. And I hope that we get it. The heart of God. 
And Jeremiah is one of the few people in the Old Testament who got it. The heart of God. Last week we heard the story from Dr. Jeff Swearing of his incredible love for his father. He had a very special bond with his father. And he tells the story of how he and his dad would go fishing and they'd go on five-day hikes. And they, they just had such a really close bond. And when Jeff moved to California, away from the Midwest, there was a bit of distance and so he didn't get to see his dad that often. And then... And, and one of the things that he really loved to do was go fishing with his dad. And, and Jeff, was a, Jeff and his wife, Lisa, were about to have their third or fourth child. And, and right about the time when Lisa was due, his dad organised a deep sea fishing trip. And Jeff was thinking, how could he do that? Because he felt fishing. He had to go. Now, I don't understand that myself. But he, he said, I, I, it's fishing, I, I have to, but I can't go because my wife is about to give birth. Uh, wife about to give birth, go fishing. Uh, apparently was the, the battle that he had. And as he thought about it, he thought, no, I really should stay with my wife, but it's fishing. I really should, no, I've got to do the right thing, it's my, but it's fishing. And he went through this whole battle, whereas not only was it fishing, it's time with my dad fishing. And he's like, my wife about to give birth. She's done it before. She knows what to do. He began to justify it all. I, she surely wouldn't mind if I went away for a few weeks deep sea fishing. She wouldn't mind. And he realised, what am I thinking? And then a strange thing happened, he said. I began to feel bitter toward my dad for putting me in this situation. And he began to get really upset with his dad. My dad knows we're about to have our next child. Why would he do this? Why would he put me through hell at this time in my life? Why would my dad... Maybe he doesn't love me anymore. Maybe he's just doing it to annoy me. Maybe he's ticked that I moved to California. Maybe all of these things he's now getting back at me. And then he had to slap himself again, not literally. And he said, wait a minute... Wait a minute, my dad would never, ever, ever do that to me. He would never do anything to, to deliberately upset me. He would never do anything to cause me to feel like he was getting back at me. That's my dad. This is the dad that would sit on the floor with me and play Lego for hours. This is the dad that would throw ball with me in the front yard. This is the dad that took me on five-day hikes. This is the dad that taught me how to fish. My dad would never do this to me. And suddenly all that bitterness and resentment and anger just went as he thought about who his dad really was. Can I tell you that if you get to know God as your father, Father God, and you get to know the heart of the Father, capital F, you read things like this, you have someone on Facebook say something nasty about our God, and you go, no, 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 no. <laughs> I know my dad. He's not like that. He's a God of incredible love, and Jeremiah got it. And you know, my prayer is that we might too. And here it is. This is my prayer. May we, God's people today, not be slack. This is the first half of the verse. Man, I could have gone to town on the first half of this verse. Because it's a great verse. Don't be slack in doing the work of the Lord. 
But let's not be slack in the work of the Lord and in coming to know his heart. And I think of the love story that some movies have played out where there's, there's a girl who really likes a guy and there's a guy who really likes a girl, but they never let each other really know or they never really get that that's how each other are feeling. And someone else comes into the scene and this person's heartbroken and this person's not really that interested in them, but they're the only one who's... And, and only if they would just turn and face each other. And I just sometimes wonder when the scripture talks about Seek his face. That it's that picture. Instead of looking over here and God's in our peripheral vision, that we turn to his face. And we go, Daddy, Father, I want to love you and I want to know your love and I want to love you more richly, more deeply, more sweetly. This is my prayer. Not only do we need to avoid being slack in doing the work of the Lord, let's be keen to come to know the heart of God. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Where is your confidence? Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Do Not Be Slack in Doing the Work of the Lord, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.